When you're pregnant, you start reading about the cost of having a baby. When you start reading about the cost of having a baby, you learn about the cost of sending that baby to college and immediately start saving all your money in a 529 plan. When you save all your money in a 529 plan, you save no money in your 401k, thinking your son will get a business degree from Harvard and take care of you in retirement. When you think your son will take care of you in retirement, he changes majors and gets a degree in jazz studies. When he gets a degree in jazz studies, he moves back home with you and you have to support him. When you have to support him, you don't get to retire. Don't be forced to work through retirement to support your jazz-loving adult son. Stop investing without a plan and upgrade to Money Talks. This is Money Talks. You're listening to Money Talks. We're back here. I'm Troy Harmon uh, here with Casey Smith and Dr. Roger Tuttero talking about economics and things that we're seeing in the economy. Uh, nothing wrong with jazz studies, though, right? Of course not. Yeah, absolutely. Any uh, any endeavor to educate yourself has got to be worthwhile. It's just a matter of it reminds me a lot of what folks talk about uh, millennials these days. And uh, household formation is uh, relatively low, right? Yeah. But uh, as, as a, apropos of this, I think it is Jazz Festival coming next week in New Orleans. Well, so there, there you go. go. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Well, uh, let's uh, let's dive back in a little bit on these uh, on these details. Now, before we went to break, I talked about the con- con- uh, conference board consumer confidence numbers, and uh, what was interesting this time was uh, the fact that we had kind of an even split between the the coincident or current situation and expectations. Now, uh, recently, most of the confidence numbers that I've been seeing have been saying, you know. Um, current situation is great, but our expectations have been lowered. This is a bit of a change from that. Yeah, and you know, you're, you're quoting the conference board's numbers. We, there's also the University of Michigan's Index right. of Consumer Sentiment. They both come out with the current conditions and a forward-looking expectations sure. component. Uh, you know, I look at the Michigan numbers most of the time, and that's the ones that our local consumer conference survey parallels. Sure. An interesting thing on the expectations component, first off, it is does have predictive power for near-term activity. It's one of the ten components of the leading economic indicators. But after the, 19, after the 2016 election, something really interesting happened. Uh, Richard Curtin, who runs the Michigan survey, looked at the disaggregated data and broke it down by the political affiliation of the household. And what he found is, depending on whether you identified as Republican or Democrat, you had a very divergent view on where the economy was going in 2017. So hopefully, Go figure. We, yeah, Another no, no surprise there. <laughs> but hopefully we're starting to see some convergence of that as, as economic realities start to govern. Yeah. Uh, so over the last couple of weeks, some of the things that we've been watching, it's really been uh, the interest rate show, right? Uh, right. This week, news is uh, first time we've seen that 10-year treasury over 3%. Last week, the news was uh, the, the spread between the 2-year and the 10-year, uh, where it's been hitting around 52 basis points or 0.52% difference where the 10-year is higher, that much higher than the two-year. Mm-hmm. Uh, interest rates are low, but uh, there was that divergence, right? That, right, that spread. Last week, it got to within 34 basis points. So what had happened is the short-term interest rates had increased without the, the longer to 10-year moving up very much. Right. Yeah, the Federal Reserve has a lot of effect on short-term interest rates. 
I mean, a lot of the short-term rates are tied to the Fed funds rate, which is the rate the banks charge each other for loans. Right. And that is the Fed's par- uh, policy target. Longer-term rates tend to reflect inflationary expectations, general concepts of where the economy is going, long-term expectations for Fed policy. And so one of the reasons people look at the so-called yield curve, which is the graph that shows you how yields change as you have more time to maturity, is that we know that that yield curve tends to invert, that is, have short-term interest rates higher than longs before recessions. Sure. So there's been a little bit of angst as of late as that spread between twos and tens has narrowed. Sure. And while it is true that before the recession of 2008 and 9 and before the recession of 2001, we did get flattenings and inversions of the yield curve, we're not getting an inversion as of yet. Right. But it is it, the spread between two and tens is one of the components of the leading economic index. But again, it's an index that is still up over 4% over the trailing six months. So Roger, sure. You mentioned that the, the short-term rates are, are more influenced by Fed policy, obviously longer-term rates. What, what drives the longer-term rates? Is that more market-based or is it how do you how do you translate a Fed funds rate increase into a, a change in a longer term rate? Well, it's funny because when you talk about long term rates, expectations for growth and inflation play into there. And this may seem counterintuitive at first, but at sometimes when the Fed raises short term rates, you could actually get the long term rate to drop mm-hmm. if the bond market reads it as the Fed is raising short term rates because they're fighting inflation. Because when you talk about long-term bonds, the big enemy of long-term bonds is inflation and mm-hmm. expectations. Because if a bond investor is going to expect there's going to be a 5% inflation uh, for a long period of time, they're not going to go out and buy a bond that yields 4%. Sure. Because in real buying power terms, they actually will lose distance on that. Sure. Right. Uh, the one thing that uh, that has been in the news, although it's kind of a background noise, uh, really more more was made of it early uh, is the Fed unwinding its balance sheet. Now, right. we got bloated to $4.4 trillion at one point uh, over the last few months. Starting in October, mm-hmm. uh, the Fed talked about how it was going to start allowing those bonds that it had purchased during quantitative easing uh, to mature. Uh, right. Going away, some are calling it quantitative tightening, but really, you know, you don't hear the financial media picking up on that much. Uh, we've lost about $70 billion, which, you know, sounds like a pile of money, but when you measure it against $4.4 trillion, it doesn't really measure up to much. Um, but we've seen the Fed's balance sheet contract about that level. Right. How much difference do you think that might be making on the long end? I mean, it has to be a factor. I mean, what the Fed did with three rounds of quantitative easing is not only did they buy lots of Treasury securities and mortgage-backed bonds, but they also committed to every time a bond matured, and came, they, they would buy a replacement bond. Right. And they would take the coupons from these bonds and reinvest them as well. So as you alluded to, last year in the fourth quarter, they started letting, I think it was $10 billion a, a month burn off. Right. And I think now they're probably up to about a $30 billion a month clip. Right. And so by the end of the year, you're going to be running close to $600 billion a year which will really start to have some effect because if they don't buy the replacement bonds, someone else has to, which means that you probably they'll buy them at a little lower price, which means higher yield. Right. And, you know, one of the things that we don't know with perfect certainty is just how much of these this um, unwinding pushes up long-term rates. Conceptually, we know it should push the rates up. The magnitude of the effect uh, it's a little bit more um, um, unknown. Right. Yeah. We've never been here, right? Yeah. We've uh, at least in my in life, spot. we've never had any correspondent to the quantitative easings that we had between 2009 and 2012. 
And so likewise, we've never done quite this magnitude of an unwinding either. Yeah, I know early in the uh, early in the stages where we had what we had December 15th, 2015 was our first uh, instance of uh, Fed tightening, which. Uh, you could argue that it was even before that where, uh, what do they call it, the, the taper tantrum when we, we tapered off right. of quantitative easing. But, but the first real step, first easily identifiable step where we had a 25 basis point increase in uh, short-term overnight yields uh, was that December 2015. And since then, we have seen kind of the, the uh, we see, we see, Interest rates have increased slightly, but right. really the curve has flattened pretty significantly since then, right? Right. I mean, presumably when the Fed raises short-term rates, it has a more pronounced effect over shorter-term maturity treasuries, uh, 60 mo- six-month, six 12-month bonds. Uh, but when you go further out the yield curve, looking at longer-term bonds, it probably has less effect. And that's where we think inflationary expectations, for example, comes into play. Sure. Uh, the Fed, as you alluded to, did start uh, raising short-term rates in December 15, another one December 16, three times last year. Probably get three hikes this year. But here's kind of one of my sticking points when I speak to groups. Let's put it in perspective. If they raise three more times this year, or three times in total this year, we'll finish the year with a Fed funds rate between two and two and a quarter percent. Sure. By historical standards, that is incredibly cheap credit. And so instead of talking about a Fed tightening, let's talk about going from a ridiculously accommodated monetary policy to an accommodated monetary policy. That's really what it is. Yeah. Uh, and not only that, it does help savers. Uh, some of the things that I've seen in the market, as long as, you know, you, you made the point, as long as you're uh, keeping your, your yields to the point where they're uh, mm-hmm. outperforming inflation, then, you know, the, the bigger the yield, the better for those uh, folks that have cash on the sidelines. You know, right? Troy, that's a great point. We act as if everyone benefits from lower short-term rates, but there are large pockets of our economy that actually have the audacity to save some money. Right. And so when we push rates that low, we are arbitrarily redistributing wealth from savers to borrowers. And we're a country that culturally is not um, burdened by people that save too much. Right. So there may be something to be said for that. Based yeah. on our investment philosophy, it's going to help a lot of our clients with the 10-year rule and having money in, in fixed income securities for their spending needs. I mean, having yep. some increased yield is not going to be a bad thing for them. Yeah, so, uh, you know, when I look at some of the rates that you can get on a CD these days, a uh, four-year CD, you can get 3%. Uh, but uh, where we left it when we left uh, our discussion just a few minutes ago uh, talking about the yield curve. But, uh, you know, you mentioned an inversion in the yield curve. That's where the short-term interest rates become higher than the longer-term interest rates. Um, That does portend a recession, but it doesn't happen absolutely immediately, right? Don't we have, like, on average, somewhere between 12 and 16, 18 months before you start seeing... Yeah, the, the, the inverting yield curve, and of course we're not there yet. The curve is the yield curve is still upward slope. Sure. Uh, empirically, it does flatten or invert many times before a recession. Now you can lay out a couple of theoretical arguments for why that might occur, but if you want to use kind of the leading indicators approach, we say we want to look at patterns in the data uh, without trying to pretend to know much too much theory about them. But the thing to keep in mind is a the yield curve hasn't inverted yet; it is flattened. Uh, B, it is, for example, one of 10 leading economic indicators, including right. initial jobless claims, building permits, new orders for capital goods, vendor performance. And over the last six months, uh, again, four point, I think it's 4.3%, 
increase in the LEI is a pretty good sign. Sure. Um, you know, we were talking during the break about the business cycle, and it's kind of a sensitive point for me because I don't think that uh, in a free market economy we necessarily have a cycle in the sense of saying that just because the economy has been growing for a while, it must be due for a recession. Sure. Now, I haven't looked at the data, um, count the months, but I think it's 106 months now the economy's been growing. Sounds right. That ties the second longest expansion of the post-World War II era. But I don't think that necessarily means we have to have a recession. Clearly, there are some sectors of the economy, durable goods, where you'll get a surge in consumption early in a recovery, and then people kind of get satiated for a while. Sure. But in the service economy, non-durable goods, I, I really would caution against inferring that just because we've been growing for close to nine years, we have to have a recession soon. Sure. Now, how much different, uh, how much, uh, I guess, this time, it seems a little different to me, I guess. How, how much different do you find it uh, through the Obama years, at least? We saw a, a return to more regulatory actions, uh, while monetary policy was very easy, allowing, you know, I always say kind of giving cover to that, that uh, fiscal policy that was restrictive. Now we seem to have just the absolute opposite. We've got uh, a deregulation of sorts, and we're also seeing monetary policy go to tightening. Uh, does that feel to you like it's kind of a topsy-turvy world? Well, I think it's fair to believe that the current administration is trying to advocate for less regulation. Sure. And I think if you talk to people in manufacturing and the construction industry, they will tell you they see some progress from their perspective in that way. Um, there's also an argument to be made that this recession, that, so this expansion may be getting long in terms of duration, but it's had some pretty weak patches along the way. And some of that may be due to the deepness of the financial crisis that we had in 2008, 2009. No doubt it was different. Yeah, I mean, somewhat anecdotally, it looks like um, recessions in which there's a big credit crunch may may take a little longer to kind of get its um, its rhythm back when it comes back out. All right, so uh, makes an easy argument for the elongation. So I guess, you know, the part of the business cycle discussion that we had, um, you know, it sounds to me like you're still favorable on growth. Um, I think it's probably a reasonable characterization. Uh, do you get any benefit from, you know, just beyond uh, looking at inversions of, uh, of yield curves? I've heard about uh, looking at uh, real yields on the S&P 500, maybe for an indicator, uh, things like ticks up in the uh, unemployment situation, which we haven't seen. Um, any of those, do you find benefits from watching that and, you know, maybe from an investor's point of view, just trying to get an indication as to where we are in the in the business cycle? Well, you mentioned unemployment rate, and I think if, if, if investors want to monitor how the economy is doing from the labor market perspective, they probably ought to be looking at the establishment survey, how many jobs were added in non-farm payrolls. Uh, the unemployment rate matters, but it's much it's complicated because people opt in and out of the labor force. Sure. And there still is some concern out there that although the unemployment rates are four point one percent, the labor force participation rate, which measures the number of folks or percentage of folks above sixteen that are civilian and non institutionalized, it remains lower. So there is an argument out there that says that maybe we are overstating the tightness in labor markets when you look at the unemployment rate. Yeah, do you think uh, that could potentially be from a squeezing out from, you know, uh, the baby boomers are working longer. Right. And, uh, you know, later in life, uh, is is that a potential for a change in that uh, participation rate? Well, that, that would actually tend to push it a little bit higher if people weren't uh, weren't exiting at the pace. they Or it, would, it could play both ways, actually. I mean, and that remains, I think, one of the open questions is with more mature workers, are some of them out of the labor force because they're still looking for an appropriately compensated reentry point? 
or are they out of the labor force for good? If they're out for good, then the unemployment rate is probably not overstating, tightening the labor market as much. Yeah, all right. That good would stuff. actually be a good thing, though, right? I mean, in terms of the future economic growth, if the labor market's not as tight as we think it is, then there's more opportunity to add right. more jobs, and, and we're not going to get to the point where, I mean, inflation would, would move more slowly up, wouldn't it? But you make a great point, and sometimes we forget that when labor markets get tight, Businesses have trouble growing, and mm-hmm. you know, right now in, in construction in particular, but certainly in manufacturing and wholesale trade and logistics, in agriculture, these are all industries where I have business leaders tell me they have trouble attracting and retaining workers. Mm-hmm. And and you know, we forget that when you hire new workers, many times there's a lot of expense uh, associated with getting them ramped up and productive for you. And so, you know, turning workers is not always the most profitable way for companies okay, to stop. You're listening to Money Talks. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All material presented is compiled from sources believed to be reliable and current, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. The contents are intended for general information purposes only. Information provided should not be the sole basis in making any decisions and is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified professional, such as a tax consultant, insurance advisor, or attorney. Although this material is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with respect to the subject matter, it may not apply in all situations. This is not to be construed as an offer to buy or sell any financial instruments. It is not our intention to state, indicate, or imply in any manner that current or past results are indicative of future profitability or expectations. Portfolio holdings discussed are subject to change. There is no guarantee that in the future these securities will be held in Hensler accounts. As with all investments, there are associated inherent risks. Please obtain and review all financial material carefully before investing. Hensler is not licensed to offer or sell insurance products. This overview is not to be construed as an offer to purchase any insurance products.